Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. All right, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, as always, Nico Perino. I'm here in FIRE's Washington, D.C. headquarters with my colleague Greg Lukianoff again. Greg, two episodes in a row. <laughs> it's, it's a record. I know, I know. He's got... The paperback edition of yes. his New York Times bestselling Woo-hoo. book, The Coddling of the American Mind, coming out next month, August, August 20th. 20th. Yes. So pick up a copy of that. You can pre-order it. It's sold almost 200,000 copies. Uh, be sure to assail your local principals and professors and university presidents with it. Buy yes. stacks of them. And buy it using Amazon Smile because a portion Smile. of that. Also a portion of the proceeds go to go to fire as well. Um, so no matter what, it's, it's benefiting us at the same time. Yeah. So double dip with that Amazon Smile usage. And this is a very special episode for us because while we have FIRE's current president and CEO in the office today, our previous president and CEO from, what, 2005? 2005. David yes. French is That's in the right. house. Woohoo! And he's the now- homecoming. Be- yeah. And, <laughs> and since then, he's become an ism. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm an ism. Oh, I thought you'd be an ology. <laughs> well, before we, before we jump in into why you've become an ism- what got you interested in civil liberties on college campus? What brought you to fire in the first place? Yeah, so I was in law school. A lot of people now sort of have this recency bias that says college campuses are awful and they have not been awful. <laughs> um, I went to law school in 1991 in an era where the shoutdown was prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were in class and and you said something, I mean, even – that mildly disagreed with the mandatory consensus, especially in 91, 92, you would be hissed and booed. You would be shouted down. There were um, campaigns to try to, uh, if someone was an outspoken conservative, for example, people would call their employer, their future future employer to try to get them fired, call federal judges to try to get their clerkships revoked. Really? In the early 90s? In the early 90s. That's the first great age of political correctness. Whenever I talk about this stuff, I'm always like, oh, yeah, it hasn't been this bad since 1986 to 1994. Right. Well, I knew speech codes were happening, but I didn't know this sort of illiberalism. Well, actually, I I did kind of know because I'm working on this documentary right now where I'm reviewing old archives of William F. Buckley's firing line. And he actually did an episode, I think, about political correctness in which – Students came to the episode because he would do these live tapings. Yeah. Right. This one was at a college campus. Leon Botstein was there, so it might have been his campus. And students protested it. Ooh, yeah, and I got disrupted two, it. And I got two book recommendations on this era. First of all, of course, The Shadow University, which even yes. though it was written in 98, talks a lot about this first grade age of political correctness. But also a book that I only found, discovered recently, which was very popular at the time, Charlie Sykes' Hollow Men, which is about a lot of some of the mm, I haven't heard of that one. It, it, it was surprisingly good. And, um, it was uh, uh, about mostly about Dartmouth. Well, yeah. And so I was just reminiscing with a classmate the other day. If Twitter existed in 1992, the level at which people would think the Ivy League in particular had just lost its ever-loving mind would be beyond today because it wasn't just sort of the the student gang tackling. I mean, this is when people were passing speech codes and calling them speech codes. Yep. Uh, it just hadn't penetrated public consciousness in, in large part because it hadn't 
penetrated so widely. So if you're at the University of Alabama, for example, or University of Tennessee, you're not experiencing the shoutdowns and things like that that would feel distant from you in a way that, you know, perhaps now, especially in, say, in 2015, it it really spread a great deal. But yeah, I mean, I I, I went there expecting, you know, some sort of, uh, I you know, platonic ideal of discourse and got shoutdowns and got- This was at Harvard. At Harvard. And- so then I was very concerned about this issue, and years later, uh, I, I first came to FIRE actually as a, I might be, the first member of the FIRE Legal Network. I, I think you were. I might be, because I was very interested in the issue, and then FIRE launched a speech code litigation project, and I filed the first case uh, in the speech code litigation project against Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. Um, which was really remarkable. Again, just think about all of this. There's these, these things are happening, and there's no Twitter, there's no social media, and so your only ability to get the word out to everyone is persuading mainstream media reporters mainly to cover this issue, which was a chore. But we would go through things like at Shippensburg University. One of the one of the fact patterns in the case was that I a one of my clients had gotten penalized because he had on his dorm room door a picture of, and this is right after 9-11, a B-52 bomber bombing a picture of Osama bin Laden with Osama bin Laden in the crosshairs, which happened to be a pictorial representation of the policy of the United States of America. (laughs) And he was punished because they said that would be offensive to Muslims. Now, if we think about that for three seconds, <laughs> that, that itself is offensive. That's to offensive to Muslims. I mean, the idea that that uh, re- protecting the person of Osama bin Laden is something that you know a Muslim student would want to see happen is a remarkable assumption. Um, but these kinds of fact patterns were happening all the time. I mean, I had a case is Penn State University um, where the the speech code issue at issue actually said this, and you, you can't think too hard about this or it'll tear a hole in the space-time continuum. Acts of intolerance will not be tolerated. So what happens if an act of intolerance occurs and you don't tolerate it? That's another act of intolerance. It can't be a to- but it's so anyway, a time loop or something. Yes, exactly. So I had um, started doing legal work uh, for um, – student groups, for individuals uh, with the Fire Legal Network. And then when the presidency opened, they created the position of president. Um, I leapt at the chance because I was at a point where as a commercial litigator with this really big pro bono First Amendment hobby, which is a tough lifestyle to maintain. So I made the decision to switch from commercial litigation to the world of civil liberties, and I've really never gone back since. Well, two historical questions for you, just because I'm interested. I was born in 1990, so oh I was around gosh. for this. <laughs> okay. I was 21 then. What got the first wave of political correctness, the first wave of speech codes, into the public consciousness? Well, Fire co-founder Alan Kors was fighting, uh, and Harvey Silverglare was fighting this long before it was cool. Um, yeah, the Water Buffalo case was well, the early 90s. Well, that was 93. So it was actually a little later it, 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 in the whole sort of like uh, rise and fall, this kind of stuff. But Donald Downs um, is one of the people who points to 1987 as being an important turning point, that somehow that's when it became okay to call something a speech code. Right. Um, and how it came to public consciousness, I mean, that's before my time. I, yeah. I, I, got, I, I entered college in 1992, but... Uh, 
that was definitely a year when the term political correctness was roundly made fun of both on left and right. I would say I think that I can't speak globally because it was really hard to sort of say here's this moment yep. around the country. But I will tell you a moment that occurred at Harvard Law School that began to switch the culture. Um, I think it was GQ, GQ or Esquire. I can't remember which one did a really long article called Beirut on the Charles, where it talked about the Civil War at at Harvard Law School. And quite frankly, it made the radicals look silly. Mm -hmm. It really did. And I tried to look up the article um, recently, and you can only find excerpts of it online. I I can't find the actual full article. Beirut on the Charles. Beirut on the Charles. And, And I remember distinctly when that came out because I was thinking, yeah, this is it. I mean, Beirut's overblown. <laughs> It'd be like saying Raqqa on the Charles now or Fallujah on the Charles, which that's a little overblown. But it did betray the very deep conflict. And there was this kind of um, – there was sort of a uh, cultural shift right there that people were saying, you're you're kind of embarrassing us. And it was not the conservative students because we were – small and embattled. Uh, If you go to a a Harvard Law School Federalist Society meeting now versus the early 90s, now it's hundreds of students will sometimes come to a a Federalist Society event. In the early 90s, I mean, there was like nine of us and we were split between the social conservatives and the economic conservatives. And it was like uh, from Life of Brian, Brian, People's Front of Judea and Judea's (laughs) People's Front. Um, And there was this palpable sense that Things have just gone too far. And the yeah. liberals on the left, the small L liberals on the left, as I recall, began to assert themselves. And then Elena Kagan came as dean. And Elena Kagan just changed – was a sea change. So she would go to Federalist Society meetings and say, I love the Federalist Society. She actively recruited conservative faculty members, busted up the sort of ideological monoculture on campus. And you know, when she was nominated for Supreme Court – uh, there were people who tried to organize recent Harvard Law grads to oppose her, conservatives. And most of them were like, nope, no, <laughs> no you don't understand. I mean, she changed the campus. Oh, and, that's great. And it was a, you know, one of the one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about now is that the small L liberals on each side of the spectrum have to hold their own side to account. The classical liberals. Yeah. Yeah. The classical liberals. They have to hold their own side. Not quite classical liberal, but I would say liberal circa 1982, where there's like a good suspicion of government. You know, you might um, uh, sort of the ACLU liberals. Yeah, the Irish class liberals. uh, Yeah, old school. (laughs) And uh, um, she really – she had the credibility. She had the uh, strength and fortitude to really – to set a new tone there. And I think – because it, it hadn't spread, this sort of virus hadn't spread so much, uh, you could take an institution and flip it around in a way that maybe might be more difficult now. Well, it's interesting because two weeks ago, Greg, or last week when we were talking to Sam Abrams over at Sarah Lawrence, I asked him the question, I mean, how do you fix the situation at Sarah Lawrence? And I said, is it a leadership change? I mean, can a leadership on its own change the culture on a campus? And he, he seemed to think no, Yeah. but I'm kind of hearing that if you have someone like Elena Kagan, maybe you can. Well, I think you can unless there's a there's a point at which the student body is sort of is is actually legitimately so comprehensively radicalized that you're talking about um, you know, sort of like holding your finger in a dike. But I think the reality and I've been talking like to an lot, evergreen state. Yeah, for right, right. Which is rare. Yeah. But you know, I've been talking to folks in the Ivies and other 
major institutions, and they say the, math, the vast majority of the students, even to this day, are not interested in, in censorship. They may be more sympathetic than uh, – they may be sympathetic to sort of the, the, the grassroots shame campaigns than they might have been 10 years ago. But when push comes to shove, they're not in the quad. And it's still a minority of students, and, and a leadership can resist a 5 to 10%. Yeah. It, once it gets to 20 to 30 to 40, then you're talking about a different kind of challenge. Yeah. Ooh, I just want to add in um, how, how uh, I met David. And I, I started at FIRE way back on, on October of 2001. So all my first cases were, were 9-11 cases. It was a really intense You were time. there oh, on yes. 9-11. Oh, I was yes. in the air. I landed at Philadelphia International Airport at uh, 9.10 a.m. on 9-11-2001. And I just thought that it was a lame airport because it was like super quiet. And we were like the only – it seemed like the only flight that had landed. And it actually turned out we were one of the very few that had – um, and, uh, you know, that's when I was looking for, uh, looking for an apartment to, to start as the first legal director of fire. Um, and, uh, David was already, I think he was already in our, our, our legal network, uh, but by the time I started and we just started, you know, chatting about different cases and oftentimes I'd stay late talking on the phone to, to David about star, uh, star Trek, um, <laughs> exactly. and, and, and moral philosophy. I was very, very angry about some of the, uh, the uh, particular episodes of Voyager and we had to talk through. <laughs> um, so we became friends pretty early on. And when he applied to be, uh, president of uh, fire, I was, I was, I was psyched about it. And I liked the idea that we're continuing the sort of, um, uh, identity of fire in which just like Harvey, uh, is left-leaning and Alan is conservative-leaning, of, of having a system in which the legal director is left-leaning and the uh, the uh, president was was right-leaning. Because I think, I think that's one of the things that really makes FIRE special and keeps us honest, and I, I really enjoyed working with him. Yeah. Well, I guess we should get into your background, David, uh, because it, I think it helps set up this conversation about why you became an ism. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> You're conservative. Yes. You're unabashedly conservative. You're an evangelical yes. Christian, if I'm not mistaken. PCA. I was predestined to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> You're a veteran. You, yes. After you left FIRE, you joined the Army Reserves? Army Reserves. Uh, I left FIRE at the very end of December of 2015, and I was in Fort Lee um, April, late April. Uh, the next year, 2006, and then uh, finished my JAG training, my JAG uh, training in uh, April of 07, and then deployed to Iraq at the uh, end of October, beginning in November of 08. And, and you did that because you were a believer in the Iraq war. Yes. Well, I felt. And I was, still are, I think. Right? Yeah, I was. So I was at the in my apartment um, at when I was at fire, and I was reading an article about a Marine who was injured in Anbar province. And in the article, they were saying that he phoned his wife and two kids in the medevac chopper. A reporter had handed him a satellite phone and to tell them he'd been hurt, but he's going to be okay. And I just felt stricken in that moment that I had a wife and two kids. Now I have three. uh, And I supported this conflict. And what was I doing? And so my wife kind of looked at me as I began to vocalize these thoughts, and I think her initial response was something like, uh, don't even think about it. <laughs> but I asked her to think about it, and uh, the very next day she was out in um, Independence Hall area in, uh, near the fire offices, and there's this place where uh, – well, there's statues of founders all over and the signatures of founders. And, and my son, who was very young at the time, said to my wife, well, who are these people? And she said, well – they are 
um, they're the founders of our country. And he, you know, super young, doesn't really know. And she said, well, they were, you know, farmers and, and pastors and soldiers and lawyers and, um, but they were all patriots. And my, my son said, well, what's a patriot? And then my wife said, came up with this great definition of patriotism just right off the top of her head. And she said um, something like, a patriot is someone who loves this country more than they love themselves. And then my son looks at her and says, are we patriots? And like that just just absolutely touched her to her core. So I come home from the fire offices and there she is with tears in her eyes and says, I need to do it. And I said, well, I'm going to go to Iraq. And she says, you need to do it anyway. And so I walked down to the uh, recruiting office and they had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> I, I come 37. In. I'm 30, 36, just at, yeah, 36, about to turn 37, bald. Uh, I was not this ninja physique you see before you today. <laughs> I weighed more. I was way out of shape. And I just said, you know, I want to be a JAG officer. They had no idea what to do other than to give me a army physical at Fort Dix. So I got a crack of dawn, went to Fort Dix, barely passed the army physical, and uh, then started the process of getting in shape. And uh, just to tell you how comical that all was, the very first run that I did, I not only pulled a hamstring, I was so out of breath, I went to the doctor. (laughs) 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 It's so... Uh, but you know, months later I, I got my carcass into decent shape and then, uh, let's just put it this way. Michael Bay is not doing any training montages of my time at Fort Lee, unless it's for a comedy, but I made it through. And you were, you were in the reserves. Uh So you had a job at Alliance Defending Freedom ADF. Yes. And now you're at National Review, which I should mention. I think it's fair to say that you were a part of what's now been coined the conservative consensus. Mm, mm-hmm. surrounding the Bush administration, the Iraq war, or at least what Sohrab Amari, uh, who is with the New York Post now, calls the conservative consensus. And there is this journal yeah. called First Things. I, th- I believe it's a religious journal. Yeah. And there was a manifesto of sorts written by a bunch of young conservatives against this conservative consensus. That's against the dead consensus, I believe, was the subtle title. Yes. And it's kind of hard for me because I'm not in the sort of conservative intellectual sphere to understand what that consensus is. But it seems to be from the manifesto and from So Rob's subsequent article, which we will discuss, that there was an agreement between kind of classical liberals, evangelical Christians, um, political conservatives as to what policy should look like. It should be uh, free market oriented, uh, free trade oriented, kind of a hawkish foreign policy, and also uh, critically for this conversation, a support for neutral principles. Uh, right. The 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 law is blind, and that the libertine drag queen storyteller in San Francisco <laughs> has equal right to their beliefs that the evangelical Christian does. But why why would you think of that example? <laughs> Which brings us to yes. against David Frenchism. Yes. By So Rob Amari, who, interesting side note here, he probably wrote the most important article <laughs> about fire ever written in 2012. It was a weekend interview in the Wall Street Journal uh-huh. when he was an editor there about Greg and fire. And yeah. that really put us kind of on the map in yeah, 2012. It, it, in terms of publicity, it, it was actually related to my first book on Learning Liberty, which came out in 2012. And in terms of raising our profile, um, you know, nothing's really matched. I remember sense. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's called How Free Speech Died on Campus. I'll put it in the show notes here. 
anyway, that's just an interesting aside. But against David Frenchism, before I describe what he says in here, it could also be titled against civil libertarianism, yep. against neutral principles, yep. uh, against fire in a certain sense because we are supporters of the civil libertarian principles. Is the principles. subtitle on there down with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education? <laughs> it could also be for theocracy in my opinion, but we can we can get to that. And, and David, I think in your response in defense of Frenchism, you kind of sum up his argument pretty well. So I'm going to read from that. Amari's stated desire is to fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good. That's a quote from him. By contrast, he says that David believes that institutions of a technocratic market society are neutral zones that should, in theory, accommodate both traditional Christianity and the libertine ways and paganized ideology of the other side. And he's what inspired So Rob to write the article was seeing an ad on Facebook or somewhere yeah. for a drag queen story time in San Francisco. You on to write that according to Amari, contemporary politics should be viewed through a prism of, quote, war and, quote, enmity. And then public commitments to decency and civility become optional. In fact, they can be a, become a hindrance to political victory over a vicious and committed opponent. In essence, you write, Amari is forsaking classical liberalism, the commitment to neutral principles, such as free speech, religious liberty, and due process, grounded in respect for individual liberty, for a largely undefined version of Christian statism. Classical liberalism, you write, especially polite classical liberalism, is the path to defeat and decay. Only a more robust statist Christian response can meet the challenge of the illiberal secular onslaught. And in Sorab's piece, he kind of gives the reasons for why we need to abandon neutral principles, why we need to abandon this classical liberalism that has that is that allows for free speech, religious liberty, um, you know, freedom for atheists, as well as evangelical Christians. He says, forced to reckon with the fact that autonomy unbound, which is what classical liberalism sort of allows for, he says it hasn't yielded freedom but new and insidious forms of digital tyranny. He says that you, David, treat as a non-starter conservative proposals to inter intervene. Instead, he says that you urge essentially a cultural solution. Silicon Valley should voluntarily adopt First Amendment norms per French, and I wish him good luck persuading our programmer kings to go along. He continues, how do we counter ideological monothought in universities, workplaces, and other institutions? Try promoting better work-life balance. Okay, wait a minute. I just, can I Cut just me off. Uh, Let's stop jump right there? Yeah. What a ridiculous fiction that last statement is, which is that my commitment to ending the ideological the problem of ideological monocultures on campus is a commitment to work life back. I, I, <laughs> I mean, at one point, I think this is true. Um, I think I had sued more universities on First Amendment grounds than any other lawyer out there. It's probably not true anymore because I left the full-time practice of law of 2015. But I sued the heck out of universities on First Amendment grounds, including the last big case that I had before I became, at, was it full-time at National Review, was suing on behalf of a professor who was denied a promotion because of his ideology. We, bust the, we busted the doors open there and won a case, one of the, I think it might have been the first jury verdict on behalf of a professor discriminated against because of his conservative conservative ideology. So he constructed a straw man of me, quite frankly. Um, but what was accurate was my commitment to civil liberties. That was accurate. 
but this sort of idea that I, otherwise I'm sort of this passive speed bump, not yeah. even a speed bump. In- it, it's really bizarre because when, when you look at the sort of like uh, the sort of forgotten age of sort of uh, ca- campus freedom of speech, which is in between the two um, great sort of uh, uh, politically correct moments um, that, you know, where, you know, where I came up, there were a handful of people actually fighting it. We all knew each other and, and yeah. the, the lead lawyer and it was freaking David French. <laughs> so it's this seems to be a full frontal attack on neutral principles, on classical liberalism, on the foundation on which fire is built. And it's a full frontal attack from conservatives who rightists, rightists, right? Yeah, we can we can <laughs> we can debate what a conservative yeah, yeah, exactly. is all day. Um, who in the age of Trump have, as so Rob Parson, abandoned the so-called consensus that existed during the George W. Bush era. I, I don't know how to actually jump into this, except to ask you, because I'm not in the conservative intellectual sphere. Is this something that you've been seeing coming along? in the rightist movement for for some time or just since Trump? And is it a big threat? I mean, it seems to me like they're arguing for a sort of theocracy, a sort of state statism in which they're no longer neutral on some of these, on, on speakers, for example. Let's just take free speech, for example. Somehow, and Sorab doesn't get into it, they're going to put the thumb on the scale of one side to try and rectify all these wrongs that, you know, Sorab lists off. He, he just sees conservatives losing left and right and doesn't see a place for classical liberalism for conservatives. Yeah. So, man, there's so much to unpack here. First, the first thing is let's talk about what it isn't. So what his broadside isn't is it's not really a broadside on what is called fusionism, the sort of um, marriage of economic uh, conservatism and social conservatism. That's not really what it's a broadside on. A lot of people have tried to make it that, but what it really is is it's it's got three components. It one politics is war and enmity, current contemporary politics, which I disagree with. Number two, that in those circumstances, civility and decency are are second order values, meaning undesirable in certain circumstances. I disagree with that. And then here's the big one. The big one is that classical liberalism, lit small. Uh, that the liberalism of the founders is ultimately a threat to the culture, that it leads into cultural decay. Um, The way I put it in another interview is John Locke plus 250 years equals drag queens. (laughs) And and it's- That's as bad as human history gets, of course. (laughs) Right. And and so, you know, what I I dispute him on all all of these fronts. So- you know, one of the things I say in my response is, you know, look, I, I will admit there was a point in time which I would have been a politics as war and enmity, enmity guy. Um, before I deployed to Iraq, uh, I remember saying this at a conservative gathering, and I I look back on this with shame based on what I learned about life since that time. And someone asked me, well, if you're actively engaged in litigating at university campuses and you're and you're doing good work there, why would you go to Iraq? And I said, well, I believe the two great threats to America are jihadism abroad and university leftism at home, and I feel called to fight both. Now, that doesn't mean I agreed with university intolerance, but to put them in the same sentence was obscene. You know, here I was, I had lived three years in Cambridge, Massachusetts, had a perfectly good life, even doing battle with shoutdowns, my son was born in Cayuga Medical Center in Ithaca, New York, when I was teaching at Cornell Law School. 
where I had a perfectly nice life. The first year of my marriage was spent in Manhattan. All of these places I'd lived, fires in Center City, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. right on the outskirts of the gayborhood, mm-hmm. had a great life there. And to say that uh, this was in any similar context, that something I would, I would use in the same breath as jihad is was ridiculous. And so, you know, as I wrote in my response to Sorab, I mean, I spent a year in Iraq where, you know, I was risking my life for my fellow citizens. So why would I come home and want to deprive them of their civil liberties? You know, and if I have confidence in my ideas, and if I have confidence that what I believe in is true, I don't need the government to put the thumb on the scales. I just need the government to put its thumb off the scales, to have the ability to speak. I remember talking to uh, Reverend Walter Fontroy, who is a, one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, and he I asked him how they were able to achieve such incredible legal change. Now, there's legacies of racism that exist to this day, but we cannot deny that in the early 60s, there was revolutionary legal change in this country. And he said, we were able to do it through Almighty God and the First Amendment. The First Amendment gave us the ability to speak, and Almighty God softened men's heart to hear the message. That was a powerful word, and I've remembered that my entire life. And so I look at a neutral public square as a moral good, if that makes sense. Uh, Sorab and others have accused people like me of a sort of a fundamental amorality in our approach to the public square. I look at the Bill of Rights as one of the most moral documents ever created Mm -hmm. in American history or in human history, in human history. It's one of the most moral documents. It's almost like the golden rule codified. Yeah. And and it doesn't dictate a particular outcome, yep. but I don't feel like I need the well, Bill of Rights to do th- that. This is something I say a lot now in, in speeches, um, and I'm trying to make sure I say it in every speech now, mm-hmm. is that um, I get a little frustrated sometimes that um, uh, so, sometimes historians refer to the American Revolution as the conservative revolution because they think that, um, and I think they absolutely got it backwards, that the 1789 French Revolution was the radical one, um, mm. whereas I actually think there was much more tribalism and much mm-hmm. more ancient ideas due, due to Rousseau. Anyway, um, but the First Amendment, when you think about it, it, um, after centuries and centuries and millennia of, of, of war over religion and the dissemination of information and speech, in one sentence, we're like, you know what? It's no longer to be okay to use violence against any of these things. Um, the rule is now people get to worship their own God. It cannot be imposed upon by the state. Um, and you can say what you want and mm-hmm. you can spread that information by using the technology and you, and you can associate and assemble. Um, it's a radical idea in one sentence. It's kind of like what, what's what's crazier than being kind of like all that stuff we were fighting about violence anymore? No, no longer. We're not going to fight about yep. that stuff anymore. Um, and it's just it to me, it's it's an incredibly moral idea. It, it, it partially because it comes with a huge as- amount of epistemic humility because, yes. because it's kind of like listen it's not our job we're, we are we know the limitations of what we can know and we're going to say what you can't do and let let human beings be decent we well, give what? about the same speech <laughs> because <laughs> i so we, when, we like each other for lots of different reasons yeah. also the fact that anytime someone compares something to the holocaust that happens on twitter we're like uh no no, that, no. like exaggerations of those kind both make us kind of like Ugh. yeah but, you know, I, I talk about the eastern seaboard of the U.S. In the, in the colonial era. If you go down from north to south, from the Puritans to the Quakers to the Catholics in Maryland, Maryland <laughs> to, Anglican, to Anglicans in Virginia to criminals in Georgia where they still remain, <laughs> uh, the, 
You've got a ton of the major combatants in the wars of religion. Yes. Being asked to live together. Yeah. In the same place. And we often denigrate the the diversity of the founding through our current lens, which where we take for granted the Christian denominational diversity is not, you know, there's there that's inherently peaceful. But if you took uh, the denominations that line any given road in Nashville, Tennessee, and you transport them 300 years in the past. They're killing each other. Yeah, the church bulletin would read ch- service at 11, Catholic burning at 12. <laughs> I mean, right. and and so the First Amendment is a bulwark against war, Yeah, to be honest. I mean, it's a bulwark against war. It gives every single human being in this country the opportunity to change this country uh, as Frederick Douglass called the fir- uh, free speech, the great moral renovator of society and government, uh, it gives every person an opportunity to seek change without conflict, yep. armed conflict and violence. And that's a marvelous gift. Yep. So, there's, a, there's a great book, uh, by the way, I always like to do book recommendation when I can. Teresa Bajan's Mere Civility talks a lot about the contribution to American thinking about freedom of speech. Um, and she actually f- uh, focuses a lot on the life and times of Roger Williams, who was an advocate of this kind of radical kind of like, listen, we're fighting wars with our tongues here. Violence is off the table, but like I'm allowed to say whatever I want given we're in a theological battle. But it really influenced the way Americans look at free speech as not merely just a battle of uh, coming to some platonic rational good, that it's actually a much deeper spiritual, that freedom of speech is really more of a spiritual right. Is it a play on, uh, what is it, G.K. Chesterton's mere Christianity? Well, no, it was actually what, I, I, what Roger Williams thought of the... Uh, the C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. Ah, I was uh, going to say C.S. Lewis. Unless I confuse my... You went for the... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so Rob in here quotes something that you've wrote. Uh-oh. And you said... Um, Is it Snyder Cut? No. <laughs> Release it. Release it. So you write, a core and very basic tenet of pluralism is the notion that people of diametrically opposed beliefs can live and work side by side so long as they treat each other with dignity and respect. Pretty much what you've been saying. Mm-hmm. Spent my entire career working with people who believe that my religious beliefs are wrong, yet even in the case of profound disagreement, it is easy to treat people well. It is easy to treat people fairly. So Rob would argue that Christians like yourself don't get treated fairly. He would point to the Baker cases out in, or the, uh, the the establishment cases out in uh, Arizona and Colorado. He'd say, look what's happening to the family. Look what's happening to religion. Look what they did to Brett Kavanaugh, which I guess was the turning point for So Rob against the dead conservative consensus. And would say, you know what, the progressives, war and enmity, might not be our game, or we think it shouldn't be our game, but it's their game, and we can't win if it's their game because it's just such a blunt tool. It's so that's so false. Okay, but you're accurately summarizing the belief, I I think. But there are always illiberal threats to liberalism. Always, I mean, even in the founding generation, I mean, the people who ratified the First Amendment, some of them also drafted the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, so so you're talking about um, their constant illiberal threats to liberalism. Liberalism has the tools and has had the tools for more than 200 years to repel those threats. Now, there was a, a one, and Ross Douthat has pointed this out, well, liberalism didn't repel the Confederacy. True, but it was the tools of persuasion and free speech that energized an entire segment of this country to have the moral will and to confront the the threat of secession. I mean, that was liberalism, uh, 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 you know, the, using the tools of liberalism to motivate a population. 
But anyway, there, there are illiberal threats to liberalism all the time. We have the ability to repel those threats. And so, for example, I mean, this is something Greg just wrote about in the, in the virtual pages of National Review. There was a time not very long ago when 75% of universities, major universities in this country, had red light speech codes. Now the number is about 25%. That's a massive change. And we didn't go in and bulldoze the academic freedom. Those of us fighting this fight didn't bulldoze the academic freedom of universities. We repelled illiberalism by confronting it in court. But you, there was no sort of takeover of universities for the highest good. It was requiring universities to live up to their consti to constitutional ideals. And the Brett Kavanaugh situation, look, we don't have to get into that because it's a very, very touchy. But I will say this, that the most effective defense of Brett Kavanaugh was a appeal to due process and to rules of evidence. That neutral was principles. Neutral principles. Due process, rules of evidence. Yep. Are these allegations corroborated? What is the evidence in support of these allegations? The most effective defense of him was not, so what? We have more power than you. The people who actually had the swing votes and the people who actually pondered these uh, issues, I've talked to some of the people who are deep in that process, and they said it was the appeal to due process that made a difference, not, it doesn't matter, the truth doesn't matter here. No matter what, he should be on the court. That's not the way it worked. And so the idea, the fact that there are threats to – there are illiberal threats to liberalism is not evidence of the failure of liberalism. It's just a fact of life. It's just the way things are. But would you say that that's a blind faith that the outcome of these neutral principles will work in your favor? Or do you just not care? If they, if sometimes you're going to win some the argument, sometimes you're going to lose the argument. But so Rob, I think, would argue that there are some things that are just so important that you can't put losing the argument to chance. For him, the family, for example, he sees a de declining birth rate, he sees no-fault divorce, and he says, okay, so we might get to speak our mind in some cases. These might neutral principles might work for us in some cases. But look what's happening to the family, the core unit of American society. So you put your faith, I mean, for you, it's your faith is almost in the American civic religion. For him, it's it's a means to an end, not an end in itself. I do not believe American, uh, the American commitment to individual liberty, and, individ and, and also it's not just individual liberty, it's also freedom of association. So we, we you know, and this is underappreciated when talking about the Bill of Rights, it protects the people, the ability of people to form civic associations, to uh, to form religious organizations and to advance their values collectively as well as individually. But my commitment to individual liberty is not contingent on the outcome of the exercise of that liberty. And I think that if you do make your commitment to liberty contingent upon the outcome of the exercise of that liberty, you're not, you're not committed to liberty. You're committed to the particular outcome. That does not say that the outcomes don't really, really, really matter and that I don't care about the outcomes. I deeply care about the outcomes. And I understand, and one of the great virtues of individual liberty is that even if I quote unquote lose any given battle, you know what I can do? I can wake, can wake up the next morning and I can go right back at it. Yep. It doesn't end. It's an ongoing process of argument and persuasion. And yes, I am distressed by many of the things that have happened to the family. Uh, but I also know that at no point in my life have I been choked off from 
saying what I believe about faith and culture and politics. And I'm sad that my efforts at persuasion don't always work, but at the same time, um, I'm very grateful that I always have access to those those tools of argument. And I, what is so that's the philosophical point. But then here's the practical point: if our culture is so darn lost, if it is just going to hell in a handbasket, why do these guys think they're going to win in politics all the time? <laughs> yeah, he, he has an, a line here. He says. Uh, tub thump long enough about your sincere but irrational views and soon opposition to abortion, same-sex marriage, polyamory, kids and drag, and much else of the same kind will come to resemble the wrong-headed and indeed irrational opposition to vaccination mounted by ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York. I just think, okay, so what if, you know, if you open the floodgates for this sort of approach to politics, what if the ultra-Orthodox Jews win? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right. Uh, you know, they think they're right just as much as you think you're right. Well, and, and the, the scaremongering, the fearmongering to me is, is intolerable. So um, there is this sense, one of the things that makes our politics so toxic is that everyone thinks they're losing. I mean, if you go, <laughs> to, a, to, put it. If you go to a progressive gathering and because, you know, I've been opposed to Donald Trump, I have all this strange new respect. You know, I can go, I can be invited in places I wasn't invited before. You and Justin Amash. Yeah, there's just a few of us, all the strange new respect. It comes and goes depending on what I write about. But um, you don't get the – there is not a sense of when you go into a progressive gathering that we are triumphant. Yeah. There is a sense of panic and danger. And then you go to a conservative Christian gathering even though the, you, until recently the Republicans held every single branch of government. There's a sense of panic and danger. When the reality, I think, is much more nuanced. Uh, my colleague Ramesh Panuru has said a summary that I think is spot on, which is in the last generation or so, America has become more pro-life, more pro-gun, and more pro-gay. Uh, if you look at a lot of the numbers, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Sora mentions abortion. The abortion rate in this country right now is lower, according to Guttmacher statistics, than it was when Roe was decided. Think about that. Um, and, and that was when abortion was illegal in some parts of America and it's lower than at that point. And so to say that all we do is lose is just wrong. We're winning in some areas and we're losing in some areas and we still have the ability to impact and persuade in all of the areas. And and just to add in one thing that I do find interesting about Soharab's sort of vision of, of the world is that I don't, I don't make any sense in it. Um, and what I mean by that is kind of like I'm an atheist, been since seventh grade, and I'm deeply concerned about religious liberty, and it actually makes me extremely angry. Um, so I have a whole chapter on this on on unlearning liberty. Um, but I do think one thing that does make it feel a little bit more validated is I do think that we are more tribal than we were even yes. three years ago, um, let alone five, 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 10, 15 years ago. And I don't think there are as many people like the sort of generation of civil libertarians I come for where it's not even a question that, that you support the rights of people you disagree with or uh, people of faith, even if you if you don't have it. Um, and so I do think that, that, that this is feeding a polarization spiral that, that, that does worry me. And when it's negative polarization, which means that if a, Repub- a Republican is a Republican not because they like Republican ideas at, ba- at base, but because they really hate and fear the Democrats and vice versa, the Democrats are Democrats not so much because they love Democratic ideas, they hate and fear Republicans. And so what ends up happening is 
if you support civil, liber civil liberties on an even-handed basis now, there are people who are going to look at you and say, you have given the enemy a victory. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. The enemy. But that's not a new concept. I mean, oh, civil sure. libertarians have always been kind of a quirky bunch. We at FIRE are nonpartisan. It's, <laughs> it's why David French can work alongside Greg Lukianoff in support of these civil libertarian principles. I mean, you can be... You can have a conservative or liberal sensibility and also be a civil libertarian. Yeah. That's – I'm making a documentary right now about Ira Glasser who mm -hmm. uh, ran the ACLU from 1978 to 2001. And before this article, I thought the big fight over neutral principles was happening on the left. Mm -hmm. You see this on comp college campuses all the time. You see it off college campuses. Going back to the, the 60s and 70s when Herbert Marcuse was writing um, – about illiberal tolerance. Right. You know, the idea that, as David, you say, supporting neutral principles is supporting the oppressor. And mm -hmm. so we need to abolish neutral principles and put our thumb on the scale in favor of the oppressed. And to people like Ira Glasser, people like Norman Siegel, this is just completely foreign to them because they grew up during the civil rights movement when to put the thumb on the scale of certain groups, I mean, you need, in order to put your thumb on the scale, you need to have certain power. In order to do that in Southern towns meant censorship of the civil rights activists. So I've always I've always seen this happening on the left, but it's completely new to me on the right. Although there's always been censorship instincts across sure. the board. Yeah. So you know now I feel like we're even more isolated as civil libertarians <laughs> than we were what two months ago. <laughs> yes. No, I think that uh, a consistent civil libertarian is quite isolated. There's always been. Look, there's, there's always been controversy around the defense of civil liberties, but I think the thing that's different now is that negative polarization is a mass cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and so you know, if you, if you defend the civil like, – I'll give you an example. This isn't exactly a legal this – is, this is a cultural fight, not a legal fight, um, but I'm very worried about the impact of corporate power over uh, our culture of liberty. Mm -hmm. And so I was – opposed to Google censoring James Damore and firing him when he posted in good faith a manifesto about how he thought you could increase diversity at Google without resorting to discrimination. He it was certainly if you know if you're just looking from the outside in, there's a lot of controversial stuff that people say at Google without facing consequences. He said something controversial, he's out. I thought that was a problem. I thought it yeah. has a chilling effect in the culture. Here's what also has a chilling effect in the culture. When a football player peacefully kneels during the national anthem and the president of the United States says he should be fired. Now, the president didn't violate the constitution because he didn't take any overt act in that direction. But I think that hurts the culture of liberty. But in both of those circumstances, if you're going to say that the president shouldn't do that and that we shouldn't call on the NFL to fire the kneeling player, you have a host of people who come and say, well, you're you are disrespecting the flag. Yeah. I'm doing no such thing. I don't think I don't think he should kneel. But by golly, if he's gonna kneel, I wanna live I wanna live in a country where corporations aren't aren't saying to their employees, we're going to start managing your good faith political expression. And I have a problem with that. And I think we have a real issue of the culture of free free speech in the country. So I I'm sort of I'm I'm sort of a civil libertarian plus, mm -hmm. um, 
I'm a civil libertarian in the legal sense, but I also want to be a civil libertarian in the cultural sense because I want our culture to respect yeah. rights of free speech, not just our judges. And of course, the person that we, we uh, and of course, David and I agree on this. And of course, the, shout out to Popat, Ken White. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken, if you're listening, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Ken talks about the idea of a free speech culture being incoherent. And I and having talked to him, I did a wonderful. It wasn't even a debate. We did a panel up up in uh, up in Washington, up in uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, and you know, I defended the idea of the culture of free speech. And I think more of what he's saying is that a lot of people who claim the culture of free speech are hypocrites, which is totally fine. But the idea that there isn't such a thing, a coherent idea of, of a culture of free speech, I, I think is ridiculous. Because of course, like what came first in a cultural idea of freedom of speech or the First Amendment? Did the First Amendment magically appear out of some <laughs> ideal that didn't previously exist? That's amazing. Yeah, what's uh, President Zimmer Immaculate to do conception of <laughs> the First Amendment. How, we didn't have this before. Yeah. We, we, we never thought this was a value before. And it's and it's relatively simple things. And people, you know, of course, people will come kind of like, oh, you're saying someone should be, uh, that th- th- the First Amendment should be imposed on these people. No, but we should have a high tolerance for people we disagree with. We should have actually, I'll go one further, we should have genuine curiosity about where they're coming from. All of these kind of things that I actually, I also happen to think make your life better in addition, but that's that's how I go like really o- over the edge. But yeah, when we start firing people, this is the Brendan Eich thing, that, mm-hmm. that, that uh, the first case I talk about in um, Freedom From Speech, my, my short 2014 booklet. Uh, when he, this was a uh, a person who was fired from, uh, well, actually no, he stepped down uh, from from under Mozilla pressure. Yeah. under pressure because he'd given to an anti-gay marriage, he gave a thousand dollars to an anti-gay marriage initiative back in in California back in two thousand eight, and there were a lot of us, including I wrote an article in the Huffington Post, you know, talking about um, the, the sixty plus uh, gay right activists, including. Um, Jonathan Rausch, uh, who got together and said, no, 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 this is not the country we were looking for. We don't want suddenly to have a country where people are losing their jobs over being what we consider to be the wrong side of a debate. We want we want the deep pluralism that, that, that we were we were talking about. This isn't confined to just civil libertarianism, although that's fire stake in this. It's also, I mean, a bigger split just across the board, economic libertarianism. Uh, Jane Coaston over at Vox kind of did a explainer yes, of yes. this fight. And she talks about Tucker Carlson, who's taking a split from the- Jane is great, by the way. Definitely a follow Friday there. Yeah, you yeah, were, you yeah, were just on good. a panel with her. It was, she was really fun to talk to. Yeah. Tucker Carlson, for example, says, I was so blinded by this libertarian economic propaganda that I couldn't get past my own assumptions about economics. In short, he thinks that while uh, low taxes and free trade might have made Americans wealthy, it didn't necessarily make Americans happy or more moral in their view, quite the contrary. So this is happening. I can't wait to meet Tucker's technocrats <laughs> who are going to, from the top down, make Americans happier um, and make Americans feel more meaningful in their daily lives. Th- see, this is... So, all right. Um, <laughs> well, well so Rob thinks that Trump has done this. He said, Trump understood what was missing from mainstream conservatism. His instinct has been to shift the cultural and political mix ever so slightly away from autonomy above all toward order, continuity, and social cohesion. Okay. <laughs> okay. Trump, the instrument of social cohesion. <laughs> Good grief. Trump, the guy who will fix the no-fault divorce family problem. Right. So – With his three divorces. Yeah, so th- this is this is something that is, um, uh, you know, look, let let's let's define our terms here for a minute because one of the things that's happening is because is that words don't mean what they used to mean anymore. So we're having an argument often about socialism, right? People are using terms like socialism 
not to describe the government taking the means of production, yeah. which is my the typical definition of socialism. There's no Ford Motors anymore. It's you know the the Bureau of Automotive Manufacturing of Skodas. Yes, it's not you know Facebook anymore. It's the Bureau of Social Media, uh, the 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 Bureau of Social Media Division and Polarization. But the what they're talking about is expanding a safety net. Mm-hmm. Now, I might be against that. I am against Medicare for all. I am against free college for free public college for everybody. But I'm not going to say that that's Venezuela or North Korea. Right. You know, and so a lot of times what we look at is we look at our present highly regulated economy and say, well, you know, Republicans are libertarians. No, go to Cato (laughs) or Reason and ask if the current American economic, you know, the current American economy is a libertarian economy. It's not. It's highly regulated. It's uh, it. There are. Thousands and thousands of government officials who regulate different aspects of this economy. So what they're saying, you know, when they're saying words like libertarian, they're creating a false perception of people who are just like, ah, you know, whatever. We have a huge social safety net in this country. We have enormous tax incentives that we give to civic associations and nonprofits to fill in and to minister to people who are hurting. We have a comprehensive scheme uh, of the you know a comprehensive government led effort that is tries to take the edges often off of our market economy and so you know what's weird to me is people will call that will say well I don't think we need more regulation of it or maybe a little bit less regulation of it becomes free market fundamentalism or libertarianism these are just buzzwords that are being attached to try to discredit an actual idea without grappling with the idea. And the the one of the things on the economic front that just keeps being I, – I, you just don't see is, okay, um, American GDP is growing. Um, Americans are growing more wealthy. Americans are grow, living in bigger houses and they have more stuff and all of this. But here's how my government – here's our how the federal government is going to fill – the empty part in your heart and make you feel more meaningful and more engaged, um, make your work feel more meaningful to make you feel more engaged in your community. That's what the federal government's going to do. That's social engineering. That's that conservatives. Yeah. It's social engineering. It's tech, you know, it's technocracy. It's, and, and look, put the idea out there. But what I would say is that there is, there, there are wounds that public policy can't heal. There are if if uh, let's just ben get Sass bra- writes about this. Yeah, let's just put it brass tacks. If I'm unfaithful to my wife, and I lose my marriage, or if I'm sitting here unable to commit, and I have three kids by two different women, three different child support payments, what industrial policy is going to make my life awesome in that circumstance? I can't think of one, um, and I don't think anybody. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't think of one. Uh, individual choices have consequence. And one of the things that I believe is that civil society is far more important than government in stepping up and filling the void in people's hearts and giving people a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. And that if you look to government to do that, number one, you're always going to be disappointed. And number two, you're going to escalate 
the, the stakes of any given election all out of proportion to what government can achieve. And I think that's what we're doing so that every election, you all got, you guys have heard it. Every election is the most important election of our lifetime, <laughs> every single one of them. And we'll hear it again in 2020. So do you see yourself as losing this argument on, on your side, which is the right? Oh, sure. For now. <laughs> but you're, you're optimistic that you'll win in the end. Well, you know, I think that um, – What? If, OK, let's say Trump gets elected to another four years. We can all remember what it was like in 2015 where it seemed like the conservative establishment, the antibodies were coming out. They were trying to purge Trump. They didn't succeed. And then it seems like on the drop of a hat, there was this coalescing surrounding it. I mean the National Republican Committee or whatever it's called um, is, is a mouthpiece for him at this point. Another four years of that – They'll see this is where the power lied. This is how you win. And people like you will feel even more ostracized, I'm assuming. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so let's put it this way. One of the consequences of negative polarization is that people are going to flock to the winner who has defeated the hated opponent. And there are a few opponents in modern politics more hated than Hillary Clinton on the right, for sure. I mean, this is somebody that you know, a lot of these older conservatives had spent a quarter, they had spent a quarter of a century opposing Clinton, the Clintons, and and quite frankly, loathing the Clintons. And so there was this sense of existential despair that at the sense that the I thought that she was going to end up winning, that this long fight with the Clintons was going to end with another Clinton presidency. And it's hard to overstate the level of gloom that was settling in on the right. So when Trump shocks everybody and wins, I mean, it, he shocked people in his own campaign when he won. It created this outpouring of gratitude and exuberance, almost unlike anything I've seen in politics. And so the loyalty that that, that moment cemented him and a lot of people, this bond. And yeah, he had the rally Trumpists who were behind him, but that was a minority of the Republican Party. That moment, that extremely shocking moment when Trump won, cemented a bond that I think a lot of people in the mainstream media just don't get because they weren't a part of this culture of gloom before then. And so whatever he did to win, that's what people are about now. Well, winning is what's most important, so Rob. So right. it's war and enmity. I mean, if this is what wins our values, then so be it. Right. And now the interesting thing will be, what if it doesn't win anymore? Mm -hmm. Then what? Well, that part of history would say, well, then we move on because, it, you know, in January of 1981, not too many people were saying, man, you know, not too many Democrats were saying, you know, what you need is more Carterism. <laughs> so one, at one point you think – on the one hand, you think people might move on. On the other hand, you know, what's happened as a result of this Trumpist moment is the elevation of a huge number of voices and the magnification of a huge number of voices on incredibly powerful platforms – who have been spending the last several years trying to put an intellectual and moral frame around Trumpism. And their, their Twitter following isn't going to disappear. Their radio audience isn't going to disappear. There is an entire edifice now that has been created. Unless Facebook or Twitter takes them down. Right. <laughs> as they would argue. As they would argue, but that's a, a lot of that's overblown for reasons we can talk about. But the, the, um, the, you're going to have a, a very large, strong following and that, and if, especially if the election's close, let's say 2020 is close, which I expect it to be, and he loses, there's gonna, then going to be a stab in the back narrative about, you know, if only you never Trumpers 
had gotten on board, we wouldn't be facing the unending sheer horror of the Biden slash Harris slash whatever administration. And so there's going to this is not going to end. Um, it's not going to end anytime soon because it's it's exposing a very deep fault line in people's fundamental conception of what America should be. Um, now, it could be papered over and if Trump loses in 2020 and somebody like um you know a Mike Lee I'm just you know a con- somebody who's more traditionally a constitutional conservative who wins in 2024 then he won. He defeated the hated enemy. So And then we gravitate toward him. Exactly. But what this is exposing is that negative polarization makes people malleable and makes people um it makes them flock to not a principle but to a person so long as the person can win. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah. Greg, did you have anything to add on? Oh, no, just it's funny. Like the um, uh, fire uh, isn't just nonpartisan um, because it's politically expedient. It's it's, it's a principle we take extremely uh, seriously. So I really try not to chime in too much on presidential politics. But some days it's harder, harder than others. (laughs) Um, I've always been very proud of the fact that we have an organization where people actually vote for uh, vote for different people within this within Mm -hmm. the staff. And that, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a, a atheist Democrat and my vice president is my much beloved friend, uh, Robert Shibley, who's an evangelical Republican, you know, like, and I, I think that's a really great model to, to follow. Um, and what we can all coalesce upon, uh, around is neutral principles, right. which is what this article more or less is against. Is against and it, it's and an it's, insurance policy and for it's all becoming, of us with It's our... never been easy and, and, it, and, it's, and it's becoming in, increasingly rare, but, they, you know, there are always storms for this. It is a pretty radical idea. Um, it's, America, American liberalism has always been a radical idea. And it takes it takes work, and it takes some times of, of surviving a storm. Uh, you know, I it's funny you mentioned the our the political diversity of fire. I distinctly remember in November '04 calling you, Greg, when the first exit polls came out and congratulating you that Kerry was going to be president. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like maybe nine or ten that night. It was you realize, oh, that's not happening. Um, which had some interesting echoes in 2016. A lot of people in mid-afternoon were saying this is going to be a landslide, and then the actual results came in. But no, I you know, fire actually. My experience at fire taught me a great deal about. So I was at a before fire. I was at a commercial law firm, and people of all different backgrounds were united about a common around a common purpose of making money. <laughs> it was the great equalizer. Um, <laughs> But, you know, at FIRE, we had probably the most diverse workforce that you'll find anywhere. I mean, um, you know, racially diverse, ideologically diverse, um, different sexual orientations, everything. And with people who were also very politically committed, not this was – these weren't passive commitments, very politically committed – but we had a common purpose in defending the rights of others we would like to exercise ourselves, like sort of a legal version of the golden rule. And what I would say, a lot of people ask me, what can we do about polarization? What can we do about this enmity? And one of the first answers I have is try defending the rights of others you would like to exercise yourself. Because it doesn't require you to yield on life, on guns, on anything. It just asks you to say, see the common humanity of your fellow citizen and they, they crave the same liberty you crave. Why don't you help them achieve it? 
And one of the things that happens when you do that is you you form a you form relationships, and b you develop you learn from them, and c you develop sort of this you develop in many cases mutual respect, and so that people who are very very conservative know about Greg, and Greg has gone to bat for them a hundred thousand times on college campuses. And so they'll read his bad takes on comic books and say, <laughs> now he's okay. He's okay. I would like to say I'm talking to a madman who currently believes that DC movies are better than Marvel the, movies. It's, it's insane. Fact. It's fact. <laughs> Anyone who knows me and Greg and our relationship knows that my eyes just glaze. Nico <laughs> used to be my it. assistant and I started talking about comic books. Or like, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. I think I've seen one comic book movie in the last decade. Uh, but you have had, uh, and definitely I'll give credit where credit is due. There have been three great DC movies in a row. You got you got Shazam, Wonder Woman, and um, uh, Aquaman. Aquaman. Yes, I've seen none of those. Thinking about Trident Finding all the time. It's oh. actually it's actually supplanted uh, the 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 double lightsaber battle that's always gone in my head. Yeah. Well, let's end on comic books. <laughs> yes, Shark, sharks with lasers attached to their heads. I, I mean, you just can't beat that. It's just it, it it's ridiculousastic, um, <laughs> and it's one of these things. That I I watched it at first as kind of like uh, this is a ridiculous it's kind of. Like as a bad movie yeah. and then I was kind of like this thing is every time like the director is asked kind of like what can I do with this movie I'm like okay there's going to be a monster no there's going to be 10,000 monsters yes. <laughs> and I just like the fact it's always over the top at every moment there's going to be a kraken and it's going to have Julie Andrews voice <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, we, we talked to because Ben, my, my my kids love love the movie Aquaman, and it's the, the what is a the the crabzilla puss is what we call the thing, and it's yeah. like a billion miles tall. It's it, it's an awful lot of fun. the moment where it clicked over for me that I was in the presence of cinematic greatness was when <laughs> was when they're flying over the sands. And the to, the the pit bull version of Toto's yes, Africa comes it's amazing, on, which takes. Cheese, was it 70s or 80s? Africa, 80s. 80s. Cheese, 80s on top of cheese hip hop. And just like, it it was, it was like. Well, it's actually, and you're you're slightly wrong on the scene because the flying came after that. It's actually them arising from the water into the desert. Yes. Where where they start playing that that version. And it's like, yes. And and the thing is, they owned it. They knew exactly what they were Mm -hmm. doing. So, like, I root for that all the time. Well, one of the things that you could do, Greg, if you want to uh, start a fun Twitter. Thing, I don't know, or do it on April Fools is right against David Frenchism and make it all about <laughs> his views on comic books. Well, and then you can respond with your in defense. To, to of get Frenchism. to more where we disagree, I think um, the worst movie of the last uh, 1500 years Spanglish. Um, is uh, Batman versus Superman. Fake uh, news. Just absolutely awful. Fake news. The director's cut was. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I love this director's cut faith where it's kind of like this terrible movie. Actually, the director's cut makes it amazing. If you give Snyder the freedom to achieve <laughs> his vision, he shall achieve that vision. Well, let's keep that conversation going on Twitter. In the meantime, I can't they, keep up with them on Twitter. It's just, it's sometimes just too I don't much. know how these writers like David, I don't know. But, but, but can to be I? so involved. I know you have to, to a certain extent. To an extent. To, to do your yeah. job. are so active on Twitter and also... Uh, so prolific in your writing. But David, thanks for coming back to FIRE today. It's been a fascinating conversation. You're writing a book. I'm writing a book. Um, It's called The Great American Divorce. And it's essentially positing that if we embrace illiberalism, we will embrace division in this country. And until that comes out, you can read his In Defense of Frenchism, which was in the (laughs) June or July issue of National Review. It also can be found online. 
He writes all the time for National Review. Check him out there. Greg, thanks for coming back on the show again. I want to write a defense of Lukianoffism just to like <laughs> pretend I've been attacked. Because I'm, like, I'm for me. <laughs> I'm for, I know. It's a weird thing. Let me just say it's a Give weird thing to write. Yes. Yep. You were probably, I mean, when it, when it happened, you must have been taken aback. I mean, you couldn't have anticipated this would come. I mean, no, it- no I, I didn't anticipate. Well, I didn't anticipate two things. One, the attack, because I'm just sitting around Memorial Day weekend, minding my own business, and I find out it's my fault there's a drag queen story hour in Sacramento. And then I didn't anticipate how viral this would become. I think it hit in a, in a news lag. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, within the next 10 to 15 days, it seemed like virtually every conservative commentator and pundit and publication had weighed in on it in Where some way. Where do you stand on Frenchism? Exactly. Pro or con, this jerk David French. And then well, he got really good at responding to email, right? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, and then also he managed to pick a target that if you want clicks, absolutely is the right target, but he's got a lot of respect across the political spectrum, which is pretty rare these days. Yeah, so Rob says it's hard to pick a fight with someone as nice as <laughs> It's nice, and my wife is stunned at that statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, thanks for coming on the show. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast we take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org and if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts they help us attract new listeners to the show and until next time thanks again for listening <laughs>